Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It is the final word calling the shots. Director's cut. Adam Collins with you and Daniel Norcross sat to my right throughout the course of the first lockdown in the pandemic of 2020. He was sat down a Zoom screen for me or on the phone as we made uh, this seven-part documentary about the 100 years of cricket broadcasting. The first couple of eps of this uh, revisit was the episode where it all began, uh, then the episode about Test Match Special, and now we, we change medium. Uh, we move to television, which was such a, a major factor between the late 1930s, but especially through the 60s and 70s. Hello. Yeah, hi. Uh, it was, wasn't it? And, you know, it was a bit outside my comfort zone to start with because I kind of took TV for granted. I didn't really think about it much as a medium. I sort of, I think I realised while we were making the programme that I just thought TV was stuff that just happened, mm. whereas radio was something that was curated, it had a richness, it had a history, I suppose because partly I'm primarily a radio broadcaster. Yep. Also because... I kind of hear cricket in radio. I hear the sounds of cricket in radio. I've been exposed to much more of it. And also, growing up in England, as we discover in this episode, there wasn't an awful lot happening in cricket on TV that changed throughout my childhood until we get to Channel 4. It was a much more massive story, really, in Australia because of the revolution that happens much earlier in the 70s. Yeah, quite right. So there's this, as you'll hear when we hit play on on the documentary episode shortly, we dance from where it starts in the UK, around the coronation in 1937, how that affects the types of commentators who first start working on television in that summer of 38, which was touched on in the previous set with Test Match Special and the way in which, or might have been the episode before actually, around uh, Len Hutton out here in the Oval and his 364. Well, you know, how in that same series at Lords in 38, there are television cameras taking it to the handful of people who've got TV sets. That's the other thing for me. I, I uh, interpret television as being a fairly egalitarian medium where everyone has access to it because that's my lived experience. You know, back in the late 30s, 3,000 people were able to watch this picture or these pictures rather, which is such a small percentage of the population. Yeah, isn't that weird? I mean, you think about, uh, we talked about David Frith, didn't we, in the, the episode before last, about how furious he was that there weren't cameras, firstly, invented earlier, and yeah. secondly, ubiquitous and everywhere. But the reason for that is uh, many-fold the technology wasn't developed enough, but also the number of people who had it. So uh, radio scooted on and is the mass medium of choice. And by the time we get to Test Match Special starting, you know, it's every ball of every game and they're going mad about this in, in 1957. Whereas TV, it's, it, it, there are so few people who have TVs that the urgency and the need to get it A and B to take up so much of your bandwidth with it because you've got so many fewer channels I mean mm. people listening to this in their 20s now will have heard their parents being really boring and saying how can you be bored when I grew up we only had three channels on the TV and it's gone in one ear and out the other hasn't it like you know my parents talking about the Second World War 
But that was a reality. And so for cricket to take over a large amount of space on TV was impractical. Whereas radio, you know, in England, as we discovered, radio sets are being sold as one set and you can toggle through all the different bands. So for there to be cricket taking up all of Radio 3 or the third programme, if you like, isn't anything like as intrusive because you've got choice. You can go anywhere. You can go listen to music somewhere else. You can listen to the news somewhere else. But uh, So that that was a a, a key element. And I think, you know, the other things that you're going to hear coming up are about the difference in uh, technique and some of these things you people will always be familiar with because of Richie Benno, but where the rules, the Richie Benno rules originated from mm, in a way, mm. where Richie Benno got his rules from, all those things really fascinated me and opened my eyes to what a more complex medium TV commentary is um, because it's less witty as a general rule, um, because you're not filling so much space and because you've got the cameras there. So the commentary always seems a little bit more sparse, a little bit more Spartan as well in its own way. And so it didn't appeal to a frivolous twerp like me. But now, having having really delved into it, and when we get it, we got all those clips together. I mean, we'll talk about that at the back end of the episode when you've all heard them. But that was the big voyage of discovery for me was was threefold. The stuff you're going to hear about India, stuff you're going to hear about Australia, and and how cricket commentary evolved, developed, and where we said, wasn't it amazing that Howard Marshall had certain techniques on radio that we still use today? And Alan McGilvray honed with the throwing away of the ball, yep. which we talked about, and how those have stayed for decades and decades. Well, TV... TV commentary certainly, certainly evolved and continues to evolve to this day. We could probably do a follow-up episode on, you know, the new generation of commentators, the ones who shout huge at the top of their voices. <laughs> maximum! <laughs> Don't get and me so started on. on the maximum. Yeah, that, that's a nice um, nice way of framing up the episode. The other strong theme that will come through is the extent to which cricket on television influenced the actual game itself and in turn how what was happening in the middle changed broadcasting and we see that that back and forth throughout whether it's in the early days in England where there's so much cricket being broadcast well what we would now call white ball cricket but limited overs cricket where it gets its real start in the 60s and it's on telly a lot over here through to Australia where there are more innovations certainly through World Series cricket and then of course onto the the enormous uh, sleeping giant that was India which was awoken after the 1983 World Cup that also in Form the guests that we selected, a true, um, meant in the kindest possible way, badger of broadcasting, Mark Nicholas, who I think we spoke to for nearly two and a half hours. There's a handful of grabs for him in this, but the longer version of Mark Nicholas we put out on the final word feed before. But Just a word on that, because yeah. uh, we were in lockdown and, you know, Mark's a very, very busy man. And so when we put all this together, the names that we were banding about, about who we were going to get on, I was half thinking, is Mark Nicholas really going to want to give us two strokes an hour and a half of his time well not a bit of it he got so into the interview and he had to go and play golf didn't he I think so the first yeah. one and he realised I don't think it was golf I don't think we were allowed to play not? golf at the time but it was it, something. he was, was going, going on a cycle That's, he was, oh he, was that he, it he was going on a bike yeah. ride somewhere going on a bike ride so he went so, but, he, but he had to do this it was, it was a fixed time and he was kind of mortified that he hadn't got everything that he wanted to say out and he offered 
to come back. He said, I, I, can, I can do it again for you. I do more. Was it like the next day or something? Yeah, yeah. a couple of days later, I reckon it was a Saturday yeah. morning, we did an extra hour, hour and 20 or whatever it was. And he, you know, it, again, doesn't quite come through here, although some bits might. He's quite emotional when talking about it because mm. whilst he was a cricketer, he's now well about to become the president of the MCC. He's been involved in initiating chants for shine. He's had a varied and rich life in cricket. He's true north, if you like, his broadcasting. And that goes back to before he was a player, when he was a little boy watching in his living room uh, in the 60s and 70s, I suppose. Uh, we had Jim Maxwell return for a second gallop. Jim, on anything Australian broadcasting history, is just gold, and I'm glad we were able to get him to tell us everything that he knows. He taught me so much. I didn't... Because I, I obviously didn't know. It's one of those weird things where TV, you, you just don't get. Like, as, a, as an English boy... I never got to see Australian cricket on the TV. You right. just didn't at all. Whereas you could actually get little sort of grabs of the radio. It might appear somewhere else. So that was a complete voyage of discovery for me. And, and what I also found out through this with Jim, although I don't think it made the final edit, was that there were duplicate commentaries made of every Australian test match between 1979 and I think about 1988, where because Channel 9 didn't have distribution networks into every last corner of the country. The ABC still had to make one and Jim was involved heavily in that, which I didn't know until uh, we interviewed him for this. There was Harsha Bogley who... He, he's the guy, he's the front man of TV and cricket in India more than anybody else. Uh, you'll hear a, a oh, grab. Yeah. He's right, he's right, he's, he's right there at the beginning. It's his the timing's magnificent and he says to us at a, at a later date, I think, that it's impossible to have someone else do what he's done in his life in cricket because there can only be one first and he really was the first. He was the defining anchor as India's economy's opening up and even that, I said cricket and TV intersect and influence each other. The, the economic story of India mm. is directly linked to television and cricket. And did you know that before we started? Well, again, we'll, we'll it'll, come It'll all be for later. Okay. And Dan Waddell, who had a more sort of academic interest in what we were doing, having written a book on it and having followed it closely through his dad's career. And he takes us right back to the 30s and the 40s, which... Um, so he, he was invaluable. I mean, we, we, we've got, again, we got really lucky here. We went back to the dawn of broadcasting on the radio in our first major episode. Yep. And we pretty much got back to the dawn of TV broadcasting on this one with those four guys. All right, well, why don't we play the episode here? This was, as I say, live for the first time on the 29th of May 2020, back in the feed today, uh, calling the shots on TV. We'll be back uh, for a conversation about some more stuff that we learnt afterwards. As Holly pitches the ball up slowly and he's bold. Bradman, bold, Holly's not. Then volley to Bradman. Ball well pitched, Bradman moves forward, drives. Cotton at cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball, and it races away for another four. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it, it's all, it's high, it's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so it's all, it's a what? He's done it. Gary has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. Oh, Stephen Hermerson with a slower ball. One of the great balls. Hermerson comes up and bowls and Kasparovic goes back and parries one as he caught down the left side. There's an appeal for catches out. England have won. England have won. Why did he do that? 
Unbelievable. And now pass for Moza. Six wickets for Andy Shropshire, England's hero. England win the World Cup. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. By the barest of all margins. Absolute ecstasy for England. Agony, agony for New Zealand. Pat Cummins from the far end. He bowls to Stokes, who hammers it for four! And stands there with the back raised. I can't believe we've seen that. And they're looking for that, let alone chasing it. It's going straight into the confectionery stall and out again. I'm Adam Collins. I'm Daniel Norcross, and this is Calling the Shots. Adam and I, over six episodes, are tracing the century-long history of cricket commentary on radio and television. From the Australian and English pioneers of the 1920s and 1930s to the internationally recognised names we know today. Exploring what makes a great commentator and how their broadcasts come to inform our understanding of the game we love. Over the last two episodes, our attention was squarely on the development of radio commentary, from its modest beginnings into an institution of the game. Today, on part four, we shift gears. Television. And to help us tell that story, we have four guests. I grew up watching every ball. Welcome to Mark Nicholas, who for the last 25 years has been broadcasting international cricket around the world. My routine was to watch the play in the hours of play. And that's all I did. So mum had to have lunch ready at 1.30 and we started again at 10 past 2 and tea had to be at 10 past 4 and started again at half past 4 and then at the close of play I would replace Jim Swanton and do the summary to my mum or dad if he came home from work. You know, and that was what happened. I'm not saying this was a negotiable thing. I did interview Richie Benno. He faxed me his answers. That's Dan Waddell, the prolific author and historian who wrote And Welcome to the Highlights. And he gave me his sort of rules on commentary by fax. TV started in Australia, middle of the year. Of course, returning to the show, that's Jim Maxwell. The very first person, would you believe, other than the Prime Minister, on the ABC was Michael Chalk, who's still with us today, living in London, and was a significant early voice in the, the history of cricket broadcasting. 96, 97, 98, 99 were the big, big years of the spread of television. And last but not least, Harsha Bogle, the defining voice of Indian cricket. And there was a tide and we were just floating along on it. This week our focus is on television. Where did it begin and how did it leave its mark so indelibly on the game of cricket itself? We begin our story by returning to Len Hutton's record-breaking summer of 1938. But this time, we're not at the Oval. We've crossed the river to Lords. Only a few thousand people had TV sets in those days and it could only be broadcast in sort of the London area uh, because of the lack of transmitters. Their only experience was the 1937 coronation of King George VI. The glory of a British coronation. Nowhere in the world is there anything half so wonderful. For May the 12th, 1937, will be one of the dates in English history that the schoolchildren will learn about, maybe a thousand years from now. The same team covered the 1938 Ashes series with two cameras, one following the bowler run-up, one focusing on the on the batsman, and then shots of the crowd from the from the top of the tavern. And they'd built a platform for the commentator who was Captain Henry 
Thornton, Blythe, Wakelam, Teddy Wakelam. They had a few problems just logistically because the, the gates weren't big enough to get the TV truck in. There was a lot of teething troubles. Wakelam had little time for cricket on the radio, believing that the slow pace of the game made it entirely unsuitable. TV was for him a far better medium, and in the early days the BBC took the coverage in just three blocks of one hour spread out across the day. Press coverage was immediately gushing with praise and wonder. The Times reporting that Test cricket was the delight of viewers, and to see the batsman sending the ball to the boundary and to hear the roar of the crowd, the viewer must have felt himself on the pitch. And joining Wakelam in the commentary box the following year was a familiar name to calling the shots listeners. Commander Tommy Woodruff, who's well known for giving a commentary whilst well refreshed. But within a few weeks of the Oval Test of 1939, the war put everything on hold. When Test Cricket returned in 1946, the BBC's outside broadcasts could still only reach London, but expanded to Birmingham in 1950, with Leeds and Manchester following in 1952. Helpfully, this was in time for Fred Truman's first Test match as the Indians capitulated, losing their first four wickets in the second innings without scoring a run. A young Brian Johnston and Aidan Crawley had been on the mic through this period, and Johnston didn't take long to establish himself as the top dog. And he became the first voice of TV cricket. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. And the race of all time. What a scene here. And complimenting the new boys was an experienced radio man from before the war. E.W. Swanton uh, was famous for his end-of-play summaries. Swanton would face the camera and do an envisioned talk in which he would recount the day's play, and his word was final. But the pictures by modern standards remained rudimentary. With only three cameras, it was impossible to capture all the action. Catches in the deep and square of the wicket were routinely missed. And a style of commentary specific for television had yet to be developed. Luckily for Johnston, he was working alongside a forward-thinking producer, Anthony Craxton, and between them, they soon drew up a list of do's and don'ts for commentators. Writing in armchair cricket in 1956, Johnston clearly laid out what would later come to be known as Benno's Law. Say nothing unless you're adding to the picture. But while the BBC still had only one channel to play with, cricket had internal battles to navigate in order to get airtime. The problem with in the 1950s was going off to Andy Pandy. And it reached the point, they're trying to get Children's Hour moved. That's not going to happen. You know, the people who ran Children's Hour, they were formidable. They then tried to get Children's Hour cut in half so it would be children's half hour so it would be on 6.30 to 7 they suggested that and said Brian Johnston could adapt his commentary to be suitable for children eventually in 1964 that problem was solved by the arrival of a second channel BBC2 the groundwork had been laid, the infrastructure was in place and developments in the format of cricket would now lead to a period of unrivalled dominance for the BBC that would last for the next 35 years Meanwhile, over in Australia, television was advancing at a slower pace, but a major global event, the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, would provide the impetus required for rapid change, and cricket would be its beneficiary. Good evening, and welcome to television. An historic match took place in the Olympic City a few weeks after the close of the Games, and the TV cameras were there to catch the action live for the very first time. New South Wales played Victoria, and, would you believe... The match ended up in a tie. When the ABC was covering cricket from the outset of television's introduction in Australia and Sydney and Melbourne were able to do the last session. The geographical challenge that Australia presented to the emerging technology was much more acute than in the UK. 
but the ABC did manage to get up and running for test matches two summers later, the 1958-59 Ashes. At the forefront of that series was a man who will play a big part in the unfolding story. It was only right that his first test as captain was the first to be shown on Australian TV. Yes, we're very, very happy. I'm very happy myself. I'm very proud of the boys, and uh, I can assure you they're happy too. The TV cameras also proved hugely influential in exposing a scandal that otherwise may never have been scrutinised. Ian Meckiff, the Australian quick, had demolished England in 58-59 and helped secure an unlikely victory for the hosts. But TV evidence showed that all was not right with the left armour's action. It was a controversy that we ramped up again ahead of Australia's next visit to England in 1961. Cricket recovered from bodyline. Today there's throwing. Will it be banned or tolerated in big cricket next season? Throwing by fast bowlers might mean the death of somebody sooner or later. By 1963, Mecca's career was in ruins. TV cameras by their mere presence had caused the change to the game itself. As the 60s wore on, the expansion of the ABC's reach across the vastness of Australia fuelled the growing expectation of viewers and created a consistent approach. The dominant voices were Frank Tyson and Norman May and uh, they carried the coverage around people like Bob Simpson and uh, Keith Miller but it was more like uh, voices hidden behind the curtain. You didn't see their faces very often. The ABC settled into this rhythm for the next decade. Nothing flashy, nothing too demonstrative, but a comfortable rhythm nonetheless. Then, in 1975, Australian viewers got their first taste of overseas action with the final of the World Cup. And that's out. The fourth run out of the innings. A very fast throw from Holder. I wouldn't mark it down as one of the best pieces of running between the wickets I've ever seen. And Max Walker is out. So now we have four runouts in this Australian innings. By now, with cricket on colour television, the interest was peaked of a man who would go on to not only dramatically transform how cricket was broadcast in Australia, but would shake the game's foundations to the core. Kerry Packer. And he made no bones about it. He wanted the cricket on his commercial network at Channel 9. But due to the loyalty the Australian Cricket Board felt towards the ABC, they were having none of Packer's hefty bid for the rights ahead of the 1976-77 season. He was furious. Then, the MCG centenary test of March 1977 rolled around. One of the most spookily brilliant games of cricket ever played. And through again. It's racing out towards the boundary. It might get there. Let's see what happens. It's very close indeed. And the ball will win five in a row. Hooks from 36 to 56 in five balls. And there's a wonderful innings. I'm sure he'll get this man will get a standing ovation for this extraordinary performance of scoring 174. One of the finest innings we've seen in years and years on this Northern ground. And the player, Derek Randall. It was there that Packers' allies were actively recruiting players for a breakaway competition slated for the following summer. The Australians, who had long complained about their pay and conditions, needed little convincing. And young guns like Hooks joined established stars like the Chapel brothers Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh. Seemingly, everyone was in on it by the time the story broke two months later, including England's skipper Tony Gregg. The test matches might have been staying with the ABC per the establishment's insistence, but the new attraction was moving to Channel 9 with Packers World Series cricket. After two decades of stability, two fractious summers followed like no other. That marked a point in the history of cricket in so many ways, but in terms of broadcasting, it was the ABC's um, last uh, exclusive test match coverage in the centenary test. 
In the first 20 years after the war, the BBC had maintained a mostly settled line-up on TV, with Johnston at the helm, flanked by Swanton and Peter West. Ex-pros such as Dennis Compton, Jack Fingleton and Ted Dexter appeared as summarisers, but the main callers were avowedly broadcasters. But as the 60s wore on and the distinction between gentlemen and players was abandoned on the pitch, the BBC began to look for a commentator that could bring with him the expertise that came with playing cricket at the highest level. And whom should they recruit but an Australian, who had first appeared as a summariser for them back in 1964 and had been learning his craft for some time before that. Way back in 1956, um, when uh, Daphne, who was with BBC, went on the official television course for BBC. Uh, later in that year, I had an unofficial course organised for me and I did this course three weeks, 11am until midnight, every day of the three weeks, to learn about television because that was the year it started in Australia. We were all taken by Richie right from the off on TV. He had such knowledge. If, if he said it, he, that's an amazing gift, isn't it? If he says it, it must be right. By the end of the 60s, Johnston had fallen out of favour. His frivolous and jovial approach was considered out of step with the new direction in which the program was heading. In his place, Jim Laker, the retired spinner, was recruited to commentate. All the while, the sheer volume of cricket on TV was being ramped up thanks to the addition of BBC Two affording them more airtime. Even county championship cricket was now getting a regular showing, including the day Sobers went wild in Wales. And he's done it! He's done it! And my goodness, it's gone... Way down to Swansea. Six on the trot. 36 and one over. My goodness gracious. What an over. The One Day International had yet to be invented, and while Test cricket remained the pinnacle, in truth the 60s were a dreary decade on the pitch, with attritional cricket and innumerable drawn matches. The BBC was worried that cricket was becoming a turn-off, and in an echo of later times, pushed the authorities to consider innovation on the pitch. They were very much at the forefront of pushing one-day cricket and seized on the Gillette Cup when it first started. Four runs, 50 to Proctor. And my word, is getting a great hand from the locals here. And once they saw how well this new 65-over cricket worked, their appetite for limited-overs matches grew insatiable as the formats became shorter and shorter. The International Cavaliers, with, with names like Sobers and Benno and Ted Dexter, fitted the bill ideally for Sunday afternoons and, and the sort of long yawning schedule they had there, they launched Sunday League cricket, the John Player League. And to placate the traditionalists, who should be on mic but Test Match Special's master commentator? John Arlott always did the Sunday League. And you find a lot of guys are different on radio and TV. He wasn't really. You always got his emotional attachment to the game. I always felt that John characterised cricket perhaps best of all, from the layman's point of view. Just one more fall like that will end the game. And it's Peter Robinson to Garfield Sobers. Well, and there's two extra for luck. No, no, it counts. Just inside. Four, and that's enough. So, the Cavaliers win their hundred guineas, and Dennis Compton is to collect it. But Arlett was confined on TV to the Sunday League alone. The move to former players calling the action was in full force when England played. Benno and Laker were now the main men, and Johnston's former no-frill sidekick, Peter West, took on the role of presenter. Peter West was a consummate sort of TV pro. That he loved his cricket, he loved his rugby, and he, he sort of fitted in. By the mid-70s, the Benno, Laker and West trio were ubiquitous and revelling in the rise of a West Indian team that would dominate cricket for years to come. 
That's a glorious shot, glorious stroke. Oh, what a marvellous shot. That really was a superb stroke. And that's it. Kept away nonchalantly and elegantly. Uh, Richards going on to a second double century in this Test Match series. In many ways, the mid to late 70s was the peak for cricket on BBC TV. The schedules were full and the commentators respected, but the coverage itself was not moving on. That same comfortable rhythm that the ABC had found in Australia was being replicated in England. In the 70s, a guy called Nick Hunter turned up who was a bit younger, who, who, who knew that the, the, the coverage was, getting, was too staid and, and, and dull and it, it could be done better. Hunter had pioneered the televised coverage of snooker and is widely credited for inventing the split screen that transformed darts into the perfect televisual experience. But his ideas for how cricket on TV might be advanced were falling on deaf ears. He decided to move on. Had he stuck with cricket, perhaps the story might have been different. Instead, that comfortable familiarity remained while change was afoot on the other side of the world. Packers World Series cricket had arrived. And while it took some time to capture the public's imagination, the players at his disposal ensured it wouldn't take long. Oh, good morning and welcome to VFL Park Melbourne for the first day of uh, the opening super test of the series between the Australians and the West Indians. It was perceived at the time as a commercial heist, and it was only when people understood that he had a true love for the game that they began to realise there was something behind it. He had night cricket in his head, he had the white ball, he had the coloured clothes, they were all in Kerry's head. There was something of the genius in him. Kerry had the eye for television. Packer also demanded more from his commentators that had been the norm on the national broadcaster. He directed them to be part of the excitement, part of the draw. He wanted uh, an energy... Constant energy. He's hit it many a mile. He's six miles and it's over. A magnificent hit from Wayne Daniel. Pitline pitching down the wet side. And look at the jubilation in the West Indian room. And rightly so. Poor bowling, but a great shot. Over the ground at Fairbell Park for six runs. And what a finish. That energy was married with a raft of technological advancements that brought the game closer to those watching from their living rooms, laying the roadmap for what would soon become expected of all broadcasters. David Hill, who was the producer for World Series Cricket, he decided we need to see the bowler running in towards the batsman. They were interviewing players when they were dismissed. That feeling of sort of intimacy with the game um, was very, very important. Within two years, peace had been struck between Packer and the ACB. He had won the war. Cricket was moving to nine, full time. And front and centre was the man with the silver hair and the cream jacket. The man who had been learning, then plying his trade on English TV for 15 years, but had been curiously overlooked by the ABC. Here he is now facing Alderman. What a delivery! What a breakthrough! Benno was, without doubt, the most authoritative voice in the game, not because of what he said, but what he didn't say, because he used uh, the medium so brilliantly. A lot of dry humour at, at times, but his timing was superb. Benno brought a, a vision and interpretation of the proceedings, uh, spot-on analysis uh, that was, was hard to beat and, and did it in a very eloquent and uh, stylish manner. He was uh, a papal figure in the game. What he said came over with some gravitas. 
And that gravitas was called upon when the strain of the constant cricket demanded by Packer became too much for Greg Chappell in 1981, resulting in the Under Armour affair. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a very poor performance. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Good night. Benno was the undisputed leader, but his supporting cast, all former international captains, all instantly recognisable, came into their own through the 1980s. A lot was made of the Tony Gregg-Bill Laurie partnership because they had a friendship and an interaction. Test match, victory by 55 runs, five wickets to Peter Sweet, one of the all-time great test matches. But actually, Tony Gregg with Ian Chappell was really good. Greggy was generally high, but could also talk the techniques of the game. Ciappelli was generally more reflective. That's beautifully hooked. That's one way to stop a fair amount of short pitch bowling keep hooking him like that yes that's the best way by miles that's uh, a magnificent shot two men back down there he was a lot fonder of australia than he cared to pretend in his broadcasting it was he was very clever in the way he set himself up as the dark side Billy in to bowl the last ball of the day he's bowled him he's bowled him the last ball of the day Lily getting one to nip back finding the inside edge and bowling out for richards well what a magnificent start for australia the West Indies four down for ten, and the crowd absolutely astounding. No cricket commentary team has been able to match the original Channel Nine four, Benno, Laurie, Chappell, and Greg, and it's just everything is compared back to them and considered not the same. Time for a quick break on calling the shots. When we return, India joins the party. Was sitting in the stands in the Vankhede Stadium in the Garware uh, pavilions. The first two rows were our commentary box. So if someone came and slapped us on the head from behind, there's nothing we could do. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to the final word. Welcome back to Calling the Shots. By the early 1980s, television had yet to make its mark on India. It was radio or nothing for cricket lovers. We had a broadcaster then called AFS Talyar Khan and he would do the broadcast all day, every day, all by himself. But the radio was where the family gathered and radio was the medium of cricket. However, in 1983, the ground shifted as India flabbergasted all comers by doing what no other side had managed, beating the all-conquering West Indians in the World Cup final. Doodrashan ensured that we never missed it because they had it on virtually every day. It got to a stage where I could I could tell you when the bowler was running and what was going to happen on it. I'd seen it so many times. He's gone! Caught Lloyd! Coupled out the skipper. Extra cover. Lloyd is caught. 66 for 5. And West Indies in total disarray now. India had struck with almost nothing to bowl at. 183 their total. And now the world champion, 66 for 5. It's impossible to overestimate the impact of that win. It sent demand for cricket on TV in India soaring. The only problem was that there was no reliable infrastructure to meet that new demand. I did my first test match in 1984. I was sitting in the stands in the Vankhede Stadium, in the Garware uh, pavilions. The first two rows were our commentary box. So if someone came and slapped us on the head from behind, there's nothing we could do. We just started the game doing commentary, that's it. By 1991, India was reeling more generally. The government had pledged all their sovereign gold and were about to become bankrupt. 
But at the national election that year, Narasimha Rao won a mandate on a platform of liberalising India's economy. Everything was about to change. India had no choice but to get foreign investment into India. Otherwise, we were gone. In the, in the, by 91, we had three weeks. So the economy opened, customs duties were slashed, import duties were slashed, and it became, uh, and India opened its doors to the world economy. One consequence of the reforms was the pluralisation of Indian broadcasting. But having operated in a one-channel state until this point, there was plenty of catching up to be done by those who entered the market. Crucially, that included ESPN, where Bogle himself soon found a home in front of the camera as part of a fledgling new operation. He was raw by the time we learned what colours to wear, what kind of glasses to wear, comb your hair or no. Gee, he was so naive. He was so naive, knew nothing. This opened the door to commentators who had established reputations outside of India to make a mark as well, endearing themselves to the burgeoning local audience. And it's bowled him, it's bowled him, and it's all over. Come in the now, two stumps on the ground, and Kumble has taken his sixth wicket. The West Indies all out for 123. India have won the Hero Cup by 102 runs. In this fluid environment, being in the right place at the right time proved enormously helpful. By 95, they needed an Indian face. I was told a day before that I'm, I'm hosting the telecast of the 95 uh, India New Zealand series. I had no idea what, what live telecast meant. So Anita and me have actually gone to the Raymond store looking for jackets. And they only had double-breasted jackets in their shop that day. So we bought two double-breasted jackets, one of which had very fine checks, which you would never wear on television because the picture strobes. Good morning and welcome to the Eden Gardens in Calcutta for the third day of what's been a sensational test match so far. You learned by making mistakes. But now, as money poured into India from abroad, the country was in a hurry. The multinationals were carried away by one factor, and that was per capita consumption. They saw the huge potential and they said, we must get into every corner of India. How do you get into every corner of India? You get in through movies and you get in through cricket. And just as Bradman had fueled a boom in the 1930s, another man was attracting enormous interest, riding the wave of the new prosperity, Sachin Tendulkar. Because he's a product of the economic growth of India. Once India opened up and a lot of overseas investment came in, it brought in overseas television production, it brought in overseas companies, and they were looking for Indian heroes. In a matter of just a few years, the benefits of a positive feedback loop were becoming clear, with cricket and the fortunes of the country growing side by side. And because cricket and Tendulkar were becoming bigger by the day, cricket was the biggest source of entertainment. There was no better time for the World Cup to return to the subcontinent than 1996. In 1987, when India played host, Dordashan needed to rope the BBC in to help them put on a suitable outside broadcast. Now, nine years later, an international team of commentators was assembled, including all of Channel 9's stars. And on the field, India's prodigy was going great guns. It was the perfect combination. 96 was, in many ways, Tendulkar's World Cup. Uh, we had big crowds, everybody was watching television, and that 96 quarter-final between India and Pakistan in Bangalore, it was the single most viewed television programme in the history of Indian television. Oh, the big appeal, he's got him! Fast ball! At RBW! Well, the Indians are rejoicing. This is some victory. By then, television in India was firmly entrenched. 
With his performance on the field combined with rapid commercialism, Tendulkar broke out of the confines of cricket to become omnipresent across India, endorsing some of the biggest brands of the world. Pepsi came in and hired Tendulkar along with the film stars, made these fabulous Tendulkar commercials that were beamed not just on cricket but on popular entertainment. Meet Sachin Tendulkar, just plain greedy. When it runs, wants a done. When it's Pepsi, wants a truck. Pepsi. Nothing official about it. This reached fever pitch when Tendulkar's star met another in the TV box during a 1998 tournament. To this day, remembered by Indian fans in just two words. Desert Storm. So Tendulkar versus Australia, that whole 98 series, he was he was incredible. He went there as it turns out it's his 25th birthday. And if someone from overseas comes and says nice things about your players, then you feel even better. It's high. It's all the way. It's way over the top into the crowds again. Session Tendulkar wants to win this match. Oh, he's hit this one miles. Great shot. Oh, it's a biggie. Straight over the top. The little man has hit the big fella for six. All of India was going along with Tony. Tendulkar was the star. But did Tendulkar ever happen? If there was no Tony Gregg, Tendulkar showed the world, but more important, showed India, that an Indian could be the best at something he does. As for Bogle, he was fast discovering that the frenetic obsession with cricket that was being unleashed brought with it a remarkable amount of fame and notoriety. Not just for the players, but the commentators too. Anyone who's in front of the camera becomes an entity. And because at that time no one else was in front of the camera for cricket, suddenly you started getting noticed. In India they call him the voice of cricket. Officially, of course, he's only a cricket commentator. But in fact, he's probably more popular than most of the players he talks about. Today's your chance to find out just how this has happened as I introduce you to the one and only... Commentators were now reaching every corner of India. The megastars on the mic were now shaping what was going on in the middle in ways they couldn't possibly have anticipated just 10 years earlier. Raul Dravid said once that the best coach that rural India ever had, the best cricket coach rural India ever had, was television. Sehwag used to sit in his house with a bat in his hand. Every time Tendulkar defended a ball on television, he would defend the ball in his house. If Tendulkar played a backfoot punch, he would play a backfoot punch in his house and then listen to people like Boycott and Gavaskar deconstructing techniques. In England, a surge quite like this hadn't been experienced since a brilliant team of the 1950s were making their way under Peter May and Colin Cowdery. Indeed, it was estimated that more than 5 million Britons were watching the most dramatic moments of the 1961 Ashes. But by the 80s, the programme had perhaps slipped into a predictable groove. Take this sign-off to a tight one-day international between England and Australia during the summer of 1985. Well... All I can say at the end of a heavenly day here, it's been a beautiful sunny day, is that if the other two Texaco Trophy matches are as well contested, nobody really ought to complain. We leave you on this lovely sunny evening at Old Trafford with a shot of the Derbyshire Hills. I've never seen them so sharply delineated. Good night. Benno is still there. Welcome to the highlights of the first day's play of this second test match. England and India at Headingley, a marvellous day weather-wise. But unlike Channel 9, the BBC were doing little to promote him or elevate the quality of their broadcast. It was only in 1989 that they screened the coverage from both ends of the ground. I think the idea that it could be done better 
it was never really considered. This is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we're going to continue to do it. As for overseas coverage, highlights from Channel 9 would be shown, but live cricket had been confined to the odd day here and there when the Ashes were on the line, until pay television arrived in the UK at the start of a new decade. Sky come along in the in the early 90s and they start covering overseas tours. And the Rupert Murdoch-owned B Sky B was an instant hit. It was magical. And you saw that white light, those thrilling sequences with the crowds and actually some phenomenal cricket because England played out of their boots against the odds, against the good West Indies side. It's got to be out, he's got it, yes, he's got he's out, run out. Beautiful throw in there from the deep. Devon Malcolm fumbled the ball, in came the throw and boy, over the bales it was. England have struck and we have a run out. There's an old line from the people in the marketing department at Sky, that Sky Cricket won us Surrey. So for the first time, Surrey or Middle England could, could turn on cricket in the winter. Sky had seen what was possible and hired John Gaylard, who had worked for Channel 9 as a producer. That prompted Sky, when they got the rights, to try to track that Channel 9 journey. They even hired Tony Gregg. Earning his stripes on those away tours with Sky was a young Mark Nicholas, who was to prove hugely influential in the next development of broadcasting in England. This really has been a day when sport has been king. This has been entertainment unparalleled in the history of the game, with the match ending drawn with the scores level. All credit to the players for that. For the moment, it's goodbye from Bulawayo. Soon, Sky wanted a larger slice of the cake, and particularly, they wanted to expand into home internationals. Thinking to the future, government intervention would be needed to fully satisfy their appetite, and they got it with the support of the TCCB. Vic Wakeling, who was running Sky Sport, asked me and Bob Willis to prepare for him a future programme of scheduling for Sky Cricket on the basis that we won rights to one-day internationals, one-day domestic cricket and test match highlights. So we did that and we took it to Lord McLaurin, who, who was running the board. He said it, it looked a perfect plan, but anyway, he'd like to get cricket delisted because it would make it a more competitive marketplace. Increasingly, the writing was on the wall for the BBC. They managed to cling on to test matches in 1994, but when the rights came up again in 1998, it wasn't just Sky who were in the picture. It was a terrestrial station, and they were wholly unprepared for that. When competition emerged in the shape of Sky and Channel 4, they just had no response to it. They were pretty shocked. I think their pitch was a bit lazy. I think that assumption is the mother of all you-know-what, and I think they made the assumption that they'd had it from the beginning and they'd continue to, to have it. They'd pioneered broadcasts back in the 30s. They'd provided a platform for the growth of the domestic and international game in England. But after 61 years of cricket on the telly, the BBC was no more. On the other side of the world, though, the nine juggernaut was rolling on through the 1990s. With enormous authority, given a deal that had them not only broadcasting the game on nine, but marketing it, there was no mistaking that cricket was nine and nine was cricket. The ABC never promoted the coverage of television cricket in the way that Channel 9 did. They didn't market the personalities, uh, nor their coverage in the way that Channel 9 did. 
and those personalities were having a life outside the commentary box. Comedian Billy Birmingham with his chart-topping albums, The Twelfth Man Tapes, further embedded the commentators into the mainstream. That's the best caught and bowled you would ever want to see, my friend. Mervyn Hughes, a magnificent reflex catch to take his hat thing on the Melbourne cricket ground, and the crowd's gone wild. It's a great day for Victoria, a great day for Australia, it's a great day for the world, and it's a great day for the great man, Mervyn Hughes, the hero of the MCT. I love him. I want to book him. Get him up here. Jeez, bull, settle down, will you? No, Tony, I won't fuck you. Fuck the rain. Fuck the rain. Fuck the rain. Richie, give us a hand here, will you, mate? Come on, boy, get a grip on yourself. But even Channel 9 was suffering from the effects of staleness early in the new century. By then, Mark Nicholas had spent a couple of years with 9 and was now helming Channel 4's innovative coverage back in the UK. The board meeting, Kerry had a real dig at the cricket. He said, these Channel 4 people are doing it better than us. And we were the number one. What's happened? What about that kid we had from 4? What happened to him? Get him to make it like Channel 4. Packer had been the force behind cricket on TV in Australia for 25 years, and he wasn't done yet. Despite all the success and riches that had earned him, he cared deeply about how the broadcast went day to day, maintaining a hands-on approach to feedback. I revered what had happened with World Series cricket. I, I enthused about the direction in which it had taken the game. He hated in-house talk, but he wanted you to focus on the game. Tell us about the game. People don't know what you know. Tell us about the game. But on Boxing Day in 2005, Kerry Packer died at the age of 68. A divisive and hostile figure he may have been, but the mogul's influence on the broadcasting of cricket on television was without peer. In his absence, the big four remained, but nine was set to be overhauled. An era was over. When Channel 4 and Sky were successful in their rights heist worth £103 million over seven years, there were similarities to the challenge Packer and Nine had faced back in the late 1970s. Viewing figures for cricket had dropped alarmingly. In 1997, only one day of the Ashes coverage had attracted an audience big enough to register in the top 100 sports programmes put to air on terrestrial TV that year. And much like Nine, Channel 4 knew that improvements in technology and a change in style were essential to arresting this decline and grow the game beyond its traditional base on their fresh new platform. We certainly tried to lift the level a bit. We appealed to younger people a little more. We embraced some new technology so there was more to talk about. I remember us thinking, we can do this livelier and better. The inclusion of Richie Benno was a masterstroke. It combined the experience he had as a pioneering broadcaster on Nine with continuity for those in England. When I first met with Channel 4 and agreed a deal, I was signed up before a production company, before a head of sport, or a producer, a director, and they said to me, what should we do? And I said, sign Richie Benno. Said, He's 150. And I said, no, 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 sign Richie Benno. The sudden appearance of brash newcomers was bound to cause some consternation in a country that had only known the BBC for cricket on the telly, but nerves were soothed by Benno's presence from the outset. After the first day we went on air, Giles Smith, a very funny columnist who was then with the Tele Telegraph, wrote a column about our first day on air. And it was something like if Channel 4 were to assemble a, a series of programmes on penetrative sex, uh, as long as Richie Benno was there to say morning everyone, it would have been just fine. And that's how important it was. Yeah! What a good ball. Anytime you see a spin bowler 
persuade a batsman to cover his stumps with what seems the perfect defensive delivery and then there is a crash of ash, you know you've seen something special. Benno provided that continuity, certainly, but everything else was about to change. Not least the instantly recognisable BBC theme tune. How do you solve a problem like Soul Limbo? Nick Stewart, who discovered you too in his days with Island Records, came round one night. About midnight, we sort of cracked it with a piece that was pretty good, um, sort of ticked a lot of the boxes. And then he suddenly, as, as we were cracking it, he said, hang on, hang on. And he went back to the car, fifth or sixth time. And he came back up and he whacked this CD in. And I went, oh my God. That, that, that's it. It's called Mambo Number no. 5. I said, what? <laughs> And we just loved it. We looked at each other and we said, this is it, this, this is it, this is it. Armed with a visionary producer in Gary Francis, determined to bring an entirely fresh approach and supplemented by a vigorous team champing at the bit, Nicholas had all the tools he needed at his disposal. He just needed approval from above, and he got it. Michael Jackson, who was the chief executive, got up to go. I said, Michael, before you go, what about dress? And he turned around and he smiled, don't mind, he said, but no ties. And I said, T-shirts? And he said, I don't mind, but no ties. This game isn't the property of any privileged class. Just as Brian Johnston had anticipated Benno's law 43 years before, the new kids on the block were still, quite rightly, playing to some old, and in this case, Reefian rules, but with a crucial modification. You know, if you ask me to crystallise what we were most trying to achieve, there's a lot of ease there. There's educate, enthuse, entertain, but get rid of elitism was one for me. A headwind was a truly woeful England team in 1999. After their home loss to New Zealand in Falls first summer, they found themselves on the bottom of the test ranking. However, that £103 million made central contracts possible at last, which in turn gradually produced better results on the field. And their new approach behind the microphone found favour with no less an authority than the national coach himself. Duncan Fletcher said that in 2000 that the Channel 4 coverage had done as much for the game in the country, if not more, than the players. He felt that our, our approach to the game had given everybody a feeling of brightness around cricket. Sure enough, England beat the West Indies thrillingly with some performances and catches and wicket-taking bursts that were up there with any in the history of the game. script you wouldn't put it in a comic book the performances on the pitch just got better and better by 2005 the final year of the broadcast deal both the channel 4 machine and that england team were at the peak of their powers we had a, a commentary team of atherton and slater of a more modern era um, benno and greg greg gave us a tremendous global effect his impact around the world had been great and the cricket was for the ages Nicholas and co were at their best in the most dramatic moments and the public were watching in unprecedented numbers as the series reached its climax with 8.4 million watching the Saturday of the thrilling Nottingham test. Then, 10 million tuned in for the historic final day at the Oval. It was golden. That is very good. The swing works, the Oracle again. Quite brilliant from Simon Jones. Incredible. Oh, Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. 
given the moment, given the batsman, and given the match, that is a staggering gamble that's played off for Harmison. Certainly the best year of summer of my working life. Oh, hello! Massive! Massive! One of the most magnificent strikes you'll ever see. And of course, there was Yozza, Simon Hughes, journeyman county bowler and rider on the game had become the analyst. This unlikely figure had carved out a niche for himself and almost impossibly cult status as he channeled his simple enthusiasm into explaining the game to novices and experts alike. Yozza had a crack at jargon busting and did it brilliantly. Well, I'm so excited, I can hardly hold the microphone. He was unfussy, had a much better eye for the journalistic aspect of, of it was much more ruthless with the edit, was much less self-engaged by the moment on television. Slip fielder, uh, close to the wicket position. If the batsman makes a slip, he pays the penalty. It had been an epic summer. On the 12th of September 2005, England had finally got their hands on the ashes after a 16-year wait. But the country was about to lose a defining commentary voice. The producer wanted us to sort of announce it and, 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 and then have a word from him. And he wouldn't have that. He, he said, no, I don't want that. I always carry a lot of music around with me. And one of the great ones for me is uh, Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman. Sing that duet, that wonderful duet, Time to Say Goodbye. And uh, that's what it is, so far as I'm concerned. Time to say goodbye. I can add to that. Thank you for having me. It's been absolutely marvellous for 42 years. I've loved every moment of it. And uh, it's been a privilege to go into everyone's living room throughout that time. What's even better, it's been a great deal of fun. That was how he ended. No one ever saw Richie walk across the ground. You, you saw all these heads, 22,000 heads, and suddenly the cheers changed from England to Richie. And that's apparently when they started to cheer him and sing his name that apparently Greggy says he shed a tear. I don't care, mate. I don't care what anybody tells me. I'm telling you the men I shed a tear. And with that, after 42 years and 235 test matches in England, Benno was gone. This Australian, more than anyone, was the voice, the face and the character of cricket in England with a unique style all of his own. If you were summing up Richie as a commentator, you would do worse, I think, than to use the wicket of Michael Kasprovich at Edgbaston. It's masterful in its timing and in its storytelling. Richie in perfect sync with the moves by the director in the choice of pictures. As Jones dives, all you hear is Jones! Jones! And you realise he's caught it. The camera switches to Bowden and you wait. And as Bowden starts to lift the crooked finger, you hear Bowden! Bowden! All he said. And I mean, still, it's got goosebumps coming all over me now. It is absolutely brilliant. And you think that's, that's it. They were the two key figures at the key moment. Kasprovich, the man to go, and Harmison has done a despair on the faces of the batsman. And he pauses, and then he says, Joy for every England player on the field. And that was it. 
Benno was a firm believer that cricket should be broadcast free to air, so it was no surprise he hung up his microphone. And despite the award-winning coverage that Channel 4 had provided since 1999, the biggest bid was elsewhere. Taking advantage of that fateful government decision to delist cricket, the ECB went one step further than they had seven years earlier with Sky and now handed them the entire product. Free-to-wear live international cricket on TV in England was over. It broke my heart. There's no other way to describe how I felt, really. Seven unforgettable years on the air, crystallised by the greatest series of them all. 80 people work on this production, and if you've enjoyed it as much as we have, then we finish happy. Best of all, England have won the Ashes. I'll be honest, it still hurts me now, you know. It was deemed a potential catastrophe by Wisdom's editor, Matthew Engel, writing that it would shrink the game beyond repair. But in India, where watching cricket on the TV cost next to nothing, the opposite was true. Everybody was watching. The people power factor was extraordinary, shaping not only the new decade, but framing the new century as well. Within 10 years of casting Dordashan to history, with its grainy footage and irregular cast of characters, Indians were demanding coverage of their new heroes, and that their new Indian commentary heroes deliver that coverage. Sunil Gavaskar, Ravi Shastri and Harsha Bogle. A distinctly Indian style was emerging. We saw this greater confidence coming out of India. In fact, attitudes became really quite combative. And the television coverage became more aggressive, more commercial. Somebody like Ravi Shastri bought cricket into the modern era. Nobody sat back anymore. Nearly everybody threw themselves forward. Money was pouring into Indian cricket from huge advertising budgets, but those advertisers needed slots to fill. Gone were the days of reflecting on events in the field between overs. If you've got something to say, you better jump in and say it. Because the Indian model is so advertising-driven that if you pause and lingered and if you said, oh, that was, that was really nice, wasn't it? It had a little bit of room outside off and you took advantage of that. Sorry, you're gone. If that's the last ball of the over, you're gone. Because your revenue depends on advertising revenue. It may be a model that frustrates commentators, but it reaches the parts other countries cannot reach. Viewing figures in India continued to skyrocket, informing the profound influence that the BCCI would have over the global game. As for who was fueling this boom, it's a familiar tale. A tale as old as synthetic commentary and Bradman. Television networks live off heroes. So television networks in India were all Tendulkar. Television networks were all Dhoni. From Tendulkar to Dhoni to the IPL to global cricketing supremacy, it can all be traced back to the explosion of television as India opened itself to the world. The BBC had driven the one-day boom in the 60s. Packer and Channel 9 introduced money, razzmatazz and day-night cricket in the 70s. And now the Indian TV boom was set to transform the way the game looks across the globe in the 21st century. Thank you to Mark Nicholas, Dan Woodell, Jim Maxwell and Harsha Bogle for talking with us on this fourth episode of Calling the Shots. In closing, thanks to Jay Mueller at Bad Producer Productions for making this show possible. That's all from us today on Calling the Shots. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for episode five when we explore a different kind of cricket broadcasting story when the sofa became the commentary box. Final word, calling the shots. Director's Cut, Adam Collins, Daniel Norcross. Hope you enjoyed uh, listening to that episode of the program that we made in 2020. We'll use this uh, sign-off just to reflect on a few things that we picked up 
along the way. The intersection between radio and television, those voices that we heard a number of in episode one, be it Tommy Woodruff uh, and uh, Teddy Wakelin, who both had sort of checkered histories as far as uh, their influence or their uh, their position uh, in the hierarchy of radio callers at the very, very, very beginning. Well, they were there on TV in the 30s through to E.W. Swanton, um, principally after the experience he had in captivity during World War II, coming out and becoming the definitive voice of cricket on TV in the pre-Benno era. And Brian Johnston, who was a major piece of the TMS story in the previous ep, and we pick up the story with him pretty much in 1970. Well, here we go, pre-1970, he's, he's already a living treasure, and then he's the guy they turn to to make the broadcast feel, to their thinking at the time, something that might capture more people. The very fact that they considered having Johnston call uh, more in keeping with the tones of children's hour, because they felt like he had that breadth as a broadcaster. I, I love that little... I love that little bit there, the, the the struggle for real estate. And so much of the story of English broadcasting, both on radio and on TV, you will have heard now, is the struggle for real estate. <laughs> the real estate within the BBC, which is, again, we mentioned this before about how Australian broadcasting came at things so differently, where commercial concerns are at the very root of so many of the major changes that happen in Australian broadcasting. In Britain, the BBC, this massive behemoth, these are all conversations that you don't have any real control over because they're, you know, they are channel determined within that enormous extraordinary organisation. Dan, Dan Waddell saying, you know, it was about Andy Pandy. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, a lot of guys listening to this, women listening to this on the final word feed, especially if they're Australian, probably don't know what Andy Pandy was. I grew up just at the fag end of Andy Pandy. Andy Pandy was basically a glove puppet, from what I could gather, uh, as a child. A scary thing. I didn't care for Andy Pandy. It had a really horrible uh, theme tune. It was designed for three- and four-year-olds. And to think that... Andy Pandy was keeping cricket off the TV. It's like, <laughs> enraged me. But um, but also, I mean, wasn't it fascinating, because touching on that side of things, about Brian Johnston and how he's seen that TV cricket there, they're still want it to be a bit frivolous, want it to be a bit fun. And then it Until becomes, they don't. Until they don't, and yeah. it becomes, becomes more serious. And I think, I wonder, though we never really got to the bottom of this, but I wonder if Benno's arrival on British TV actually informed Johnston's move into radio because I'm not saying Benno was, you know, a deeply serious kind of guy, but he, a little bit like McGilvray, was a less frivolous man on the radio. Benno wanted to bring the sport. It was about the sport. And he could be very dry and he could be very funny in his own way, but he didn't feel that he was there to do that. Whereas I think with Johnners, he sort of felt that he was there to make his larger-than-life character suck people in. And Benno was letting the cricket do the talking. Yeah, and it, it takes all different types. You wouldn't have wanted Richie Benno sitting at the back of the commentary box watching episodes of Neighbours, as we heard Brian Johnson <laughs> did um, towards the end of his TMS years. But, you know, Benno and the rules that he stated, the main one being don't talk unless you can add to the pictures, allegedly goes back to Johnston, which you wouldn't yeah. necessarily think, given that we conceive of him as this more frivolous character, albeit with a number of you know, huge moments early on, like, yes, it's a yes, yes. And from, from, from 53, which is probably the first you know, big television moment when England uh, win the Ashes here in, in 1953. In Australia, 
the fact that they got so lucky their first televised game after the 56 Olympics, remembering that there was no television in Australia before the 56 games, you know, and welcome to television and all that. That, that is just before the cricket season. The, the, I think the game started, if I recall correctly, on the 22nd of November, 1956. And straight after that, the Shield game, Victoria and New South Wales, finishing in a tie. I think there have been 74 ties in first-class cricket going back to the, like the Battle of Waterloo. Uh, and that one of them happened to be the first <laughs> televised game Australia ever had and, and, it's, and it's Victoria New South and Victoria Wales and some of the greats of the game feature in this fixture as well so that all fits in perfectly as does the fact and I really like from memory I have um, have a recollection of being chuffed about finding the grab of Benno there speaking ahead of his first test as captain at 58-59 I reckon I spent about a day trying to find that when he died in uh, 2015 I wrote something for the ABC his obit effectively for the ABC and I remember that being embedded inside one of the articles and thinking wow this is fascinating here Richie Benno talking as such a young man with a different kind of voice and it taking me so long to find the source of that audio eventually finding it and dropping it in there so you know the Benno piece to this with as captain first Ian Meckiff we don't go into detail in in the episode here but you know Benno is the captain who ends Meckiff's career and the reason why Meckiff's career is in jeopardy is because in 58-59 he destroys England takes that six for at the MCG everyone says he's a chucker uh, and by the time we, we, we get another Ashes cycle around and a bit after that Meckiff is no balled out of the game because of television and we hear in the grabs there that it was thought of as as, as big of a risk to the reputation of the game then as body line was in 32-33 well, it, it makes you wonder whether body line would have been able to happen had there been regular TV available right. back in England. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think it would have been because I still don't see anything wrong with Bodyline. But, <laughs> but I can imagine, you know, if that was being filmed in front of theatre audiences then they, and they really realised what Bodyline was, that there would have been an outrage very possibly. And, and mm. watching how TV... as uh, This was, I guess, one of the big things that was different about the TV episode from the radio episode was that radio was reactive and... It grew and developed because of Bradman and and the way that, that different organisations worked, you know, the way radios were sold and the way the BBC was, which we you know, touched on in previous episodes. Whereas TV ended up being proactive in changing things, in changing cricket. And in the way that Packer's vision for what cricket might be changed what cricket looked like because of how he could see it being on the TV. Whereas radio, in fairness, was bringing always what was happening through to people listening at home. So there was, there, I mean, and obviously there's a little bit of a, you know, that's not the whole story of how, of how it works. But the fact that by witnessing something, by viewing something, you can change it. It's a bit quantum physics, really. It's a bit like Schrodinger's cat. By actually, uh, it's, it's by by measure, by looking at something, you determine the outcome of something, and that's what that did with Mekif, didn't it? And it and it's what I think. I think it's what Packer had in his brain. You heard Mark Nicholas saying he was kind of a genius that he had all these ideas and he brought them out of the coloured clothing, the lights, what have you. His vision could then be realised on TV and. These were real threats to the establishment. And we didn't go deep into that. I think if we, you know, you could do a four-part series or three-part series on Packer, on sure. the Packer revolution. And if you did, one of the things I think we might have focused on a little bit more in this episode we didn't have the space for was how the establishment hated Packer because he challenged the, the easy, you know, laissez-faire, this is what cricket is. 
This is what cricket just we just go to the cricket just happens. You're coming in and changing cricket with your newfangled cameras, basically, to create a new vision, a new impresario. And it applied in both countries. So where there was that what's called inertia, maybe on, on the BBC yeah. in the eighties, well Australia experienced that more in the 70s was our finding and that the game changed as a consequence of the television with respect to all the innovations there, even down to uh, the footage only being shown from one end in England until 1989. I was flummoxed by that when learning that until 1989, they still stuck... Uh, religiously to having a camera at one end um, because, according to those at the time, it meant you had a seat at the ground that you stayed in. Because they had a camera hours. at the other end. I mean, as a, as a kid, I used to watch all the Action time. replay, wasn't and it? And the action replay would show you at the other end. So if you watch the 1981 Ashes, yep. all the wickets that Willis takes at Headingley yep. are from the Kirkstall Lane end. So you're watching every one of those live from behind, annoyingly, and you had to wait for the replay to see how the ball had deviated. So many of the wickets fell for the Kirkstall Lane end, but they've chose to seat us behind, which was so infuriating. So so there's that going on with, with, with camera angles and coloured clothing and so on, but just the way in which it was seen that the viewer's experience was paramount. So before, you know, it wasn't quite so much, although there was this proliferation of cricket on TV, short-form cricket in the 60s, and we shouldn't miss that. And you do a good job of summing this up, I think, in the scripts where we say that you know, the BBC's legacy to cricket on the telly is what it was able to do to turbocharge interest in short-form cricket through the 1960s, through the Gillette Cup and all the other short-form competitions. I had reason to go back and watch the semi-final of the 1971 Gillette Cup a couple of days ago for story time where it was played between Lanks and Gloucestershire, and it's this stunning game of cricket that goes to 20 to 9 in the evening. Oh, that's the Oh, the Jack Bond one in the, in the Jack in Bond the in the dark yeah. and, and so on. It's narrated really nicely by David Lloyd, this highlights package. But anyway, I digress. The point is, is that all this excitement that was being brought to cricket in England and it didn't quite match up with what we were seeing in the clips from test cricket at the elite level in the 80s on TV over here and in the 70s in Australia where it got too comfortable and needed to be shaken up. And in Australia's case, we know the story pretty well. In England's case... We can speak now, 20 years after the fact, oh, we go, oh of course it was Channel 4. But it, it, it was worth going into just how different cricket felt, and you would have known watching it over here, cricket felt in an instant when it moved from BBC to Channel 4 in 2000. It was, it was extraordinary. It was, it was a complete change. And I thought there was an interesting little throwaway line in there from Dan Waddell. Was it Nick Archer? Was it was the, uh, the producer that uh, had got involved and had done the split screen in oh, darts yeah, and yeah. had done snooker as well? And he tried to bring cricket more up to date. But then, you know, he just found it was too difficult, so he left cricket. And he wondered if cricket might have changed more quickly. Honestly, there was no difference, no change in test match coverage in cricket throughout. I, mean, I started watching when I was seven in 1976, and it didn't change until they got the extra camera in 1989. But it still was basically Jim Laker, Richie Benno, uh, occasional other voices as well very quietly, no, very few cameras, very few cameras. So you, you really, you watch a, a live stream, we're at the Oval today doing the Surrey live stream, mm -hmm. more cameras here for this than there would have been in a test match when I was watching. Well, uh, there are often comparisons, game. aren't there? There are comparisons between county live streams now and what it felt like to watch cricket on the BBC through the mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. I think there's, um, there's a gentle nostalgia factor to that when watching a stream but equally it's a lot different you would never get away with this on no. you know on a on a test match anywhere around the world there's an expectation that there will be a minimum of say 12 cameras and all the different moving parts and that channel 4 revolution was something else and 
the fact that it culminated in that 2005 Ashes series, I thought there was something so poignant. We, we, we had a long chat with uh, Mark Nicholas, as we mentioned, and you put out an edited version of the, those, that massive interview. So for the people who've heard that before, apologies, but um, he talked at great length to us about, we mentioned a little bit, discovering Mambo Number no. 5. Yeah. Uh, but his involvement at the very core of how that new production was going to look like and how it was going to feel was so significant. And the sadness, I mean, I really felt for him when he said, you know, it still hurts today. Yeah. It still hurts today that, that they lost the rights because what he had done was transform the way cricket and the Channel 4 team looked after 35 years of continuous coverage from like 1964 to 1998, 1998, 1999. So that's a long time for something to be, to have complete stasis. And it was basically all of Mark's watching life. And so when he got the chance to change it, he really did and changed it so much for the better. Yeah, six years Channel 4 had the rights for. And as he said, the main objective was, uh, it's one line, but it does jump out, doesn't it? Get rid of elitism. You yeah. know? And, and he, he feels that. It's very modern. He, feel, he feels very modern that. Sentiment. You know, when with you the see, him. report now, you know, the, the resonances of that were really poignant to me. And, and that he hasn't been on live television coverage in England outside of overseas tours and ICC events is sad in a way because he brought so much to it. And I'm glad that we're able to feature some of his famous moments from the 2005 Ashes. Benno as well, the, the, that great bit of editing from Jay Mueller. Just superb work. We spoke about Jay in either episode one or episode two about how we ended up working with him on this project. But weaving through, Benno describing... Uh, what happened with Harmison and Kaspervitz and Bowden and Jones and so on, and Nicholas doing an impression of Benno, but equally explaining through it what he was doing. Yeah. And Jay weaving all those bits of audio together is just superb it work. Was one of the rare occasions, because we went through the scripts, as we've explained before, putting in all these little time codes, but I seem to remember that there we basically just had to say, Jay, this is what Mark's saying, yeah. this is the clip. Can you please do your best? Do your best. <laughs> and he did better than his best. It was absolutely sensational. So, so there were 8.4 million people watching uh, the penultimate day at Nottingham, 10 million people watching the final day at the Oval, 5 million people watched the final day with Benno in the footmarks in 1961 at Old Trafford. So there were always big TV numbers. And you know, that's part of the story too about accessibility to cricket. And you mentioned the ICEC report. I know we're a few years on from that now when, the, when we recorded this, but it all does feel like it's, it's important. And Benno himself ending on the final day that, that cricket was on free-to-wear television on a full-time basis here. Yeah, you say it feels fitting and poignant. All of that came back to me too, that Benno was such a pioneer of free-to-access cricket and so on, and, and he was with it from pretty much day dot, although he did miss the first 10 or 15 years, but part of it in Australia as a player through to the very end of it in England as a commentator. It's also got echoes of the way John Arlott finished, hasn't it? Very, very I similar. Mean, I, I, yeah. I love Blowers. He's a, he's a very dear and incredible man. But when, uh, when Henry Blofeld retired, he did a lap of Lords. It was hilarious. Um, you were following him, weren't you? Were you, were you sort of in the entourage yeah, around the grounds? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Arlott and Benno both end very similarly, don't they? They have these very yep. gentle sign-offs and they're two... Titans, absolute titans of broadcasting. And I'm sure Benno knew what Arlett did in 1980. And this isn't mentioned, but I'm certain he will know that that Arlett's last moment was throwing the Christopher Martin Jenkins after a few further words from uh, from Trevor Bailey, possibly. Whoever it was. Yeah, Uh, Trevor Bailey. Trevor Bailey, and and it'll be Christopher Martin Jenkins. And then that being that, I'm sure Benno knew that it ended up being the wicket of Kevin Peterson on 158. That was the last ball that he commentated upon. Would that be the end of his stint? 
thankfully, before that ball, he got everything out about Andrea Bocelli and that, that sort <laughs> That's of, great, uh, a, a time to say goodbye and, and the privilege it was to be in people's living rooms for all of that time. So it is largely a bit of a love letter to Benno, this episode, through the words of Mark Nicholas and, and so on. On the other side of things, of course, there's the, the India story, which we touched on in the introduction but should do so again now, that they were liberalising their economy as Sachin's coming through, as Harsha's coming through, as TV channels uh, are being opened up and all these different opportunities for people in India to make money in different kinds of ways. And it was symbiotic. I mean, the, the rise of Sachin, the rise of TV, the, the rise of the Indian economy and the rise of a, a, such a prominent narrator in all of that, Harsha Bogle. Yeah, I mean, there were so many things in there that I didn't know, which was what made talking to Harsha about this absolutely thrilling. I mean, I knew that Indira Gandhi's government had been a very socialist government, almost Marxist government. I knew that they didn't have a very open uh, free market economy. Obviously, I knew that. What I didn't know was just what a small part TV played in the landscape and how, yet again, the 1983 World Cup becomes so significant. How Dordashan suddenly shows loads more TV uh, that shows loads more cricket. But the story of Harsha and how he gets that gig and when he talks about buying those two double-breasted jackets. <laughs> Having and, never done it. And never, never done it. And they've got, and they've got checks on them and it's strobing. And, and he said, we had no idea what we are doing. All of that was absolutely thrilling to me because it was like going back to the early pioneers on the radio for cricket in the previous episodes because they didn't know what they were doing when they were starting, because it had never been done before. And in a sense, you know, Harsha wouldn't have known precisely what it was that they were trying to achieve and how to do it, being in the right place at the right time. And the rapidity of that growth, and then the desert storm, you see, yep. I, I didn't know about that. I didn't, right. I didn't know how important that was until we researched this. Yeah, Sachin's 25th birthday party in the, in, in the storm and in the sand and, and all the rest of it, and, and taking Australia down twice in the space of three days, and. Yeah, it, it's, it's come up a lot of times in, in episodes of Storytime and when we've talked about Tendulkar and when he turned 50 earlier this year, people go back to that as a reference point for him. But for television, you know, that it's Tony Gregg who's such a big part of the Australia story through the Packer era, all the way back to being a player in World Series cricket, that he, along with Benno, was sought after by Channel 4, you know, being there in India, uh, being a global voice, a global authority on the game, that Tony Gregg... And Henry Blofeld are in the middle of things as well. We think of Blofeld as his great freelance identity before he becomes a, a test match special mainstay, but Blofeld being there calling the closing moments of the Hero Cup, and so it was. So all these different kinds of voices. That It wasn't just about being, I guess, um, barracking for the Indian team, and that can be a criticism of Indian television now, that it's all in-house and it's BCCI TV and so on. But then it had a more global feel to it, and you know, harsher had a box seat to it all. Yeah, and the, what a lovely, fascinating little touch it was when he talked about how when somebody talked in glowing terms about a, a player on your side when they're not from your country yep. and how important that was for yourself and your self-esteem, it revealed a couple of things, really. It revealed how really not very long ago India lacked confidence in itself, massively lacked confidence in itself on the field, but generally as an entity, and how it certainly doesn't do that now. It's, no. it's ex extremely proud of itself now, and with very good reasons, but how significant it was to get affirmation from overseas commentators. Mm, mm. And obviously what you've touched on there, 
you know, Henry Blofeld spotting a, an opportunity. And indeed, harsher. <laughs> harsher. I mean, imagine Harsher's life before he went on TV. Well-off, educated Indian man, middle-class man. Suddenly, and as he acknowledges himself, he's beamed into the houses of hundreds of millions of people. And what a staggeringly weird change that would be for someone's life. All because of Sachin, because of cricket, because of India. Um, I mean, it's amazing. It, 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 those little details really got to me. I mean, there was stuff that we didn't, we weren't able to keep in there about, you know, just how Dordashan was just not a particularly good channel and had very grainy, rubbishy footage. And well, there's always that, there's that story about, that. which we asked him about but didn't use about the 86 tied test match. The reason we haven't got the broadcast vision of that in the archives is apparently it was taped over for a table tennis tournament, right? Like that's Can you a, believe it? That, that's the kind of thing that... That's how Indian television was when it was a state-owned broadcaster with not much else in an economy that was... Well, it mirrors what happened to what Peter Baxter was trying to do with TMS stuff. Yeah, know, trying to make yeah. sure that he saved the archive so that the Romanian cleaner didn't, didn't tape over them or throw them away, you know? I mean, it's, the parallels are, are fascinating, aren't they, throughout this, these stories. All right, I think that's, uh, that's us done, Daniel. I reckon we've um, gotten through just about everything that we've learnt when making this set over three years ago now, listening back to it over the last few days or, or something like that. Um, again, it was a most worthwhile experience. I've got one question for you though, I can't remember the answer to. In every other edition of Calling the Shots, we did a bit of playoff audio at the back, be it something that was too long or something that didn't quite fit in the script. There was the Tommy Woodruff drunken audio that we played out a couple of times ago. Uh, we did the leg over last time, I think, on, on Test Match Special. There's nothing here and I have no earthly idea why. Why would have we started doing something like that, like that that seemed to go so well only to put a pin in it? Yeah, I don't know. And, you know, thinking about it, what we probably should have done was to have kept the entirety of Richie talking about the underarm. Oh, yes, that would have been good. That would have been the thing that we should probably have done because he does, he does quite a long piece to camera, doesn't he, there? Yeah, yeah, and, and, that, and that's right at the peak of Benno being the, the moral authority, the yeah. conscience of not only Australian cricket but, but world cricket. So, yeah. in fact... Why don't we do it here? We have the freedom to do this. Wow. Here's Richie Benno. Yeah. Here's what we should have done at the end of calling the shots uh, on TV. Uh, Richie Benno uh, talking about the underarm incident. That's all from us. Bye, Bye for now. now. Now, everyone around Australia will have their uh, own ideas on that, and uh, we always get letters and phone calls about different things that happen. So I don't expect anyone to agree with me. Uh, I don't expect uh, that you'll get more than 50% agreement on anything. Let me just tell you what I think about it. I think it was a disgraceful performance from a captain who got his sums wrong today, and I think it should never be permitted to happen again. We keep reading and hearing that the players are under a lot of pressure and that they're tired and jaded and perhaps their judgment and their skill is blunted. Well, uh, perhaps they might advance that as an excuse for what happened out there today. Not with me, they don't. I think it was a very poor performance. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. Good night.